0: Hey everyone, this is Vegan Theology, episode 18. This is Kevin and Sarah Hale. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hello, Kevin. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Yeah. I'm excited, as always. Yeah, it's good stuff. I've just been basking in this theology of nonviolence and this uh, richer Christology that we've been discussing. And yeah. Got me thinking this morning as we were preparing as you know, there's something about, especially when you're trying to live in alignment with your truest values and your essence, and when you're trying to be a spiritual person. I think I heard Rain Wilson say, We're not humans having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Mm. You know? And, you know, we have these practices. It's so important. Practices are so important to bring us back into alignment, especially living in this world, this fallen world that's always sucking us back into the world's paradigm, the world's ways of
0: violence. That we think is normal.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely accepted as normal. And so these regular practices of coming back and realigning and reminding ourselves and re-exposing ourselves to truth is so important and same with veganism right with uh this this type of theology not only is it contra to the world's ways but it's also different than what we're getting even in most of our churches Mm. and we know people who were devoted vegans for years
0: right
1: and you know, they weren't regularly exposing themselves to this truth to remind themselves of why they're vegan. I'm on Instagram, and I follow a lot of vegan accounts. And so on a daily basis, I'm being reminded, this is why I'm vegan. You know, either footage of animal cruelty or just facts about animal agriculture and what it's doing to the planet or our health. And so I'm constantly being reminded. And I think people who don't make a practice of constantly coming back to the truth, I think it's very easy. It's maybe you could say inevitable. You're going to get sucked back into mainstream thinking.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I just recently started supporting a musical artist on Bandcamp. And the only reason this is because his music is really only available on Bandcamp and his name is Bill Maloney. He was the frontman of a band called the Vigilantes of Love, band I really love. And couldn't find any CDs I had purchased in the past. I know we've cleaned house a few times, right? <laughs> or somebody has. And um, so, yeah, I was I was checking him out, and he, this quote came along. You know, he writes a lot. He has a blog post, but it was kind of along the lines of what you're saying right now. I couldn't find it. I was really searching for it because I wanted to share it with you it really fits in with what you're saying. And he's kind of saying that we as Christians need to incarnate the truth through our art, through literature, through music, through whatever our creative act or art is. And it really got me thinking about this podcast. And it was kind of similar to what you're saying. Like the whole reason you would want to do that, the whole reason that he does it, the whole reason that he speaks the truth is so that it doesn't get lost, so that it doesn't get forgotten, so it doesn't get tarnished or mm-hmm. muddy. You know what I mean? Like that it's clear and present, ever present. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I just thought it was really, it was a really compelling point. Okay. And it even got me thinking about the entire Trinity. So I thought, wow, this is like the Holy Spirit at work, incarnating the truth. That's through us. Through yeah. us, yeah. I was like, wow. That's
1: yeah, to keep it fresh in the mind, you know, we have to intentionally speak it, remind ourselves, submerge ourselves and expose ourselves to it. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah, especially with all the, I'll just use the word evil in the world, all the violence, all the evil, all everything that we're constantly pushing back against. I know in the beginning of our podcast, we use the term chaos and there's a lot of chaos in the world right now and it seems like there always is. And I'm not going to say it's getting better or worse. It's just it's there. It's ever-present chaos. And our jobs are to push back against that chaos and push the new creation forward.
1: So we are at chapter 8. Chapter 8 out of the total of 9 chapters. So we are doing it. (laughs) And I love that. Of Animal Theology by Andrew Lindsay, a wonderful British theologian. So this chapter I really enjoyed such a good chapter. The title is Vegetarianism as a Biblical Ideal. So he's going to use the Bible to defend vegetarianism. Mm. And he starts right off with two passages of Scripture that seem contradictory, which I really like. He starts with Genesis 1, the commandments that God gave to the humans in Eden, and then Genesis 9, the commandments that God gave after the flood to Noah in the Noahic covenant. So let's look at the passage from Genesis 1. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. Genesis 1, 29 and 30. Mm. Again, I don't remember ever having a pastor focus in on that verse, on those verses right. growing up and pointing out that actually God's will, God's perfect will in his perfect creation, in his good creation, in his ordered creation was for All creatures, everything that has breath, was to eat plants. But then we have the Noahic covenant that comes, Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So this is where we are given permission as humans to eat animals. And so he says, yeah, at first glance, this seems really confusing and contradictory. And he says, you know, cannot both vegetarians and carnivores appeal to Scripture for justification and both with equal support? Either side can go to Scripture and say, look right here in black and white. Right. And so he says, in order to unravel this conundrum, first, let's just look at the spokesperson who's writing Genesis in the first place. And this is where I, I'm so thankful to John Walton. I came back to John Walton on this hmm. page in my mind many times because if you remember, John Walton says, everything that's written in Scripture if it's something that the ancient Near Eastern person would have already understood and already believed and already practiced, that's not revelation.
0: Right.
1: Whatever is in Scripture written by the ancient Near Eastern author that would have been shocking, surprising, new, that is the revelation. Right. So I think with that in mind, Lindsay says, the community... Whose spokesperson wrote Genesis 1 were not themselves vegetarians. Few appreciate that Genesis 1 and 2 are each the products of much later reflection by the biblical writers themselves. How is it then that the very people who were not vegetarian imagined a beginning of time when all who lived were vegetarian, herbivore to be precise, by divine command? Mm. Where would they have come up with that? Right. Especially if you recall, I think our first episode, when we compared the Hebraic creation narrative with other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives that right. were so bloody and gory and right. violent.
0: It was just the gods battling, right?
1: Yeah. There was, it, was, it was all about death.
0: Right. And creation came out of, kind of built into your creation was death and destruction and chaos. Whereas mm-hmm. whereas our creation narrative is very peaceful. Yeah. And it's just God speaking.
1: Like where would they have come up with the idea that God set up creation to be nonviolent, non-predatory, non-parasitical. Right. And that God commanded God's will, not just for people, but for every living thing, every living creature, everything that has breath, would be a vegan Right. existence.
0: What's also interesting is he points out in, the, in in this chapter that when God creates humans and he gives them dominion that's before that's in I think Genesis 128 and then Genesis 129 he basically says oh and by the way all of you humans animals you're you're going to eat plants. It's
1: like the very next verse. Right. And that's what's so crazy. People love to say we have dominion we are we're given dominion don't you know your bible
0: right
1: in the very next verse god says yes you have dominion and i want you to be vegan right so obviously dominion has nothing to do with the right to kill and eat other creatures right so lindsay goes on to say to appreciate this perspective we need to recall the major elements of the first creation saga God creates a world of great diversity and fertility. Every living creature is given life and space, earth to live on, and blessing to enable life itself. Living creatures are pronounced good. Humans are made in God's image, verse 27, given dominion, 26 through 29, and then prescribed a vegetarian diet, verses 29 through 30. And then it goes on, you know, were given the Sabbath, and there's this is a paradisal, if I'm pronouncing that right, existence. There's no hint of violence between or among different species. So again, how would the Hebrews have come up with this? The Hebrews, who were reading this account, were n- neither pacifists nor were they vegetarians. So to to me. This is where, again, we go back to Walton. This is pure revelation. Right. Okay, so given that, so we know God's original will as revealed. And then what do we do about Genesis 9? So if we go to Genesis 9, remember this is right after the great flood. And what we know about the great flood is that God was so saddened by human wickedness that had taken over the planet. And, of course, we know the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel right. and Noah and his descendants.
0: But specifically in that Noahic account, violence. Exactly. Not, not just wickedness, but violence.
1: Wickedness is actually defined as violence. Okay. So, exactly. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. The radical message of the Noah story, often overlooked by commentators, is that God would rather not have us be at all if we must be violent. It is violence itself within every part of creation that is the preeminent mark of corruption and sinfulness. It is not for nothing that God concludes that, I am sorry that I have made them. Mm. So th- the thing that made God sorry for making us was our violence. Again, I don't know that this is the message that a lot of us as Christians get, this message that God hates violence. Right. So, Lindsay defends the idea that this permission after the flood to eat animals is, he calls it, ambiguous permission. It's certainly not, okay, I've changed my nature. I've changed my mind. It doesn't matter if you kill. It's a concession, right? It's, okay, I haven't given up on you. I'm still going to work with you. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and allow this for this time. Because, it, well, we'll just read what, what Lindsay says. So when they are given this permission, it's far from unconditional. It's far from absolute permission. God says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning, of every beast, I will require it and of man. Genesis 9, 4 through 5. And he says, okay, there's been some debate on how to even interpret what God is saying there. But basically, don't eat flesh with its life, with its blood, and I will require a reckoning of you for the life you take. If I will require a reckoning of every beast for taking life. He says, let's go back to these verses in the light of their original context. It should go like this. The world in which you live has been corrupted, and yet God has not given up on you. God has signified a new relationship, a covenant with you, despite all your violence and unworthiness. Part of this covenant involves a new regulation concerning diet. What was previously forbidden can now, in the present circumstances, be allowed. You may kill for food, but you may kill only on the understanding that you remember that the life you kill is not your own. It belongs to God. You must not misappropriate what is not your own. As you kill what is not your own, either animal or human life, So you need to remember that for every life you kill, you are personally accountable to God. Mm. If that is anywhere near true, that should cause, you know, the omnivores, the carnivores in the church, some pause. Right. That God is going to hold you personally accountable for every animal's life.
0: Right. Well, and also, I mean, it brings up the whole point that we've talked about, like, this is what we might call a concession, or I think he, somewhere he uses the term divine accommodation. And, you know, we know that this is how God works with people throughout the history of the Bible, through covenants, through conditional covenants, through unconditional covenants, through uh, treaties, this kind of thing. It's the same as us working with our government, like a new law comes into play in January of 2024, and it just changes the way we do things a little bit. But So this isn't unusual. There are people that might interpret the text in a black and white sort of way, and they might think that, oh, this is some sort of bad interpretation, but it's actually a pretty good interpretation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people bump up against the story of Noah, and it it challenges... Their theology of God, especially when God says, I regret making man, almost like God has changed God's mind, which for a lot of people is problematic in their theology. But it just, it invites us into curiosity and a new reading. You're right. So Lindsay says, if this reading is correct, and I believe few scholars would now dissent from this interpretation basically that we will be held accountable for every life taken, it will be seen immediately that Genesis 9 does not grant humankind some absolute right to kill animals for food. Indeed, properly speaking, there is no right to kill. God allows it only under the conditions of necessity. God allows killing for food only under Conditions of necessity, which is a far cry from where we find ourselves today. Right. He says, a recent statement by the Union of Liberal and Progressive Synagogues expresses it this way: quote, only after the flood was human consumption of animals permitted, and that was later understood as a concession both to human weakness and to the supposed scarcity of edible vegetation. Again, this makes sense to me yeah. number one, God created this verdant uh, prolific garden, but then sin came along and what was part of the curse? It's going to be hard to grow food right by the se- sweat of your brow will you get get sustenance from the ground. So suddenly it's hard to get food. Of course after the flood, when all vegetation has been destroyed, it's probably even more challenging to live only on plants. Right. So it became a necessity, and that was a context in which God, was, God gave us permission, qualified permission. John Austin Baker similarly concludes, the Old Testament does nothing to justify the charge that it represents an exploitative, humanly egotistical attitude to nature. Although it recognizes man's preying on nature as a fact, it characterizes that fact as a mark of man's decline from the first perfect intentions of God for him. So the Old Testament says, yes, you may, but it's, it also sends the strong message, this is not how God wanted it.
0: Right. I believe, that, you know, we'll get into this, not just this podcast, but in the future. That And he gets into it in this chapter, actually, that Genesis 1 combined with Isaiah, looking at the new creation, what he intended. And if you look at the whole scope or the whole arc of Scripture, you'll see that our God is a nonviolent God and he intends for a peaceable kingdom. Yeah. So that's just something to keep in mind.
1: And it's almost like you've read this chapter, Kevin, because that's exactly where he goes next. Oh, is that
0: what you were about to say? Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) No, you're so good. Um, To give a more complete account, Lindsay says, let's go from Genesis to Isaiah. We need to appreciate that while killing was sometimes thought to be justifiable in the present time, biblical writers were also insistent that there would come another time when such killing was unnecessary. This is a time variously known as, quote, the future hope of Israel or, quote, the messianic age. Isaiah speaks of the one who will establish justice and equity and universal peace. One of the characteristics of this future age is the return to the existence envisaged by Genesis 1 before the fall and before the flood. And this is just such a beautiful passage that... Many of us know, but it's worth reading. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Isaiah eleven, six through 9. It seems, therefore, that while the early Hebrews were neither vegetarians nor pacifists, again, the ideal for the peaceable kingdom was never lost sight of. In the end, it was believed that the world would one day be restored according to God's original will for all creation. Note, for example, how the vision of peaceable living also extends to relations between animals themselves. Not only, it seems, are humans to live peaceably with animals, but also formerly aggressive animals are to live peaceably with with other animals.
0: Wow. That's amazing.
1: It is. I definitely resonate. So he sums up the main elements this way. Killing for food appears essential in the world as we now know it influenced as it is by corruption and wickedness. But such a state of affairs is not as God originally willed it. Even when we kill under situations of necessity we have to remember that the lives we kill do not belong to us and that we are accountable to God. Moreover, God's ultimate will for creation shall prevail. Whatever the present circumstances, one day all creation, human and animal, shall live in peace. As Anthony Phillips writes, while the Old Testament recognizes that this is not an ideal world, And makes concessions until the Messianic kingdom comes, it remains man's duty to do all in his power to reverence animal life. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you know what's interesting about both of these passages, right? Some might say that, yeah, God changed his mind and God is now I wouldn't go so far as to say contradicting himself, but somebody might say that. But in fact, Really? I mean, God really hasn't changed. Humanity has changed. The human condition has changed. Right. Yeah, and I think we've said this in the past on this podcast that the new creation, the new earth, the eternal state, is going to be essentially Eden, the way God intended Eden to be from the beginning. And so we'll be living in a peaceful kingdom. We'll be using our creative abilities and imaginations to glorify God and mm. continue to maintain this peaceable kingdom. Anyway, um, yeah, it was very interesting. So uh, that right there would say that God really hasn't changed. Right. The,
1: so the, Genesis 9 is more what comes in between those two big ends. Right. God, yeah. God working with us within the fallen
0: world. Right. And and that, honestly, the one thing I took from that too is this whole concept of grace, that God, by accommodating our sin, the way that He states it in this book, the way Lindsay states it, is very interesting. If God would make an accommodation for us because of our wickedness and our sin and our violence, what does that say about salvation? I don't know. It's just to me, we don't need to get into it. That's a whole other topic, but it really got me thinking about it. Anyway, for another time.
1: Teasing up any website. Yeah, there we go. All right. Lindsay takes us through three ethical challenges that we could grapple with. First one the first one that should be noted is that these biblical perspectives do not minimize the gravity of the act of killing animals. Again, this is something that's just lost on at least Christians I've been raised around, right? right. The Bible does not minimize the gravity of the act of killing animals. So often in our heavily industrialized societies, we think of animals, especially farmed animals, as merely food machines or commodities that are to be bought or sold for human consumption. This presumed institutionalized right does not fit easily alongside the covenant of grace. Genesis 1 specifically speaks of animal life as that which has the breath of life. This life is a gift from God. It does not belong to human beings. It may be used only with the greatest reserve and in remembrance of the one from whose creative hands it comes. Those who wish to use animals frivolously or with no regard for their God-given worth Cannot easily claim Genesis in support. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> take it in, take it in. <laughs> yeah, he quotes Carl Bart, which is so interesting right. that Carl Bart did do a kind of an extensive amount of writing on the consideration of non-human animals.
0: Yeah. It made me wonder if he was a vegetarian or vegan. I don't don't think think Bart was. Right.
1: I mean, this is, and this is what's so frustrating so often is people will be talking about the peaceable kingdom and the nonviolence of God. And that as Christians, we're all about life and against all death. And it all sounds so vegan. Right. And then somehow they stop right at the point, you know, they don't go far enough. Right this quote of barts if there is a freedom of man to kill animals this signifies in any case the adoption of a qualified and in some sense enhanced responsibility if that of his lordship over the living beast is serious enough it takes on a new gravity when he sees himself compelled to express his lordship by depriving it of its life he obviously cannot do this except under the pressure of necessity And he goes on. But so even Bart is saying this is a serious matter. It should only be done when it's necessary. And it should be done with extreme sobriety.
0: Right. And I think he even makes a statement. And when you do do it, you better be protesting against it almost. Right. Right. He has a statement in there like that. He
1: must always shrink from this possibility even when he makes use of it. Right. Right. It always contains the sharp counter question, who are you, man, to claim that you must venture this to maintain, support, enrich, and beautify your own life? Right. What is there in your life that you feel compelled to take this aggressive step in its favor? <laughs> kind of like, what's so great about your life? Right. What are you contributing <laughs> that yeah. you think you have the right to kill in order to continue your life? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't know, that we know a lot of Christians who love Karl Barth, and I'm just like, have you read what he's written about killing animals? Okay, second challenge. We have no biblical warrant for claiming killing as God's will. God's will is for peace. We need to remember that even though Genesis 9 gives permission to kill for food, it does so only on the basis that we do not misappropriate God-given life. And he calls this kind of a dispensation. It's a dispensation of permission. Mm. It's not a permanent, non-qualified permission. The question may not unnaturally be asked, how long can this divine permission last? And he quotes here a Talmudic Scholar Abraham Isaac Cook, spelled K-O-O-K. And he says, the free movement of the moral impulse to establish justice for animals generally and the claim for their rights from mankind are hidden in the natural psychic sensibility in the deeper layers of the Torah.
0: Yeah, it's getting mystical.
1: Yeah, it's almost (laughs) like... Yeah, you may not catch that message just from kind of a glossing over and reading it literally. But if you take the whole thing into account, the deeper message is mercy for animals, justice for animals. But in Cook's view, the various injunctions, and he cites different references in the Torah, were commandments to regulate the eating of meat in steps that will take us to the higher purpose. And what is this higher purpose? None other, it seems, than universal peace and justice. Cook maintains that just as the embracing of democratic ideals came late within religious thinking, so will the hidden yearning to act justly toward animals emerge at the proper time. So again, you may not see democratic ideals in the Torah, if you're just reading at a very surface level. Mm. But he's saying those ideals come out over time. Mm. We finally evolve to see that that's God's will as a more democratic society. And he's saying we'll start to act justly towards animals at the present time. And of course may that present time be now, mm. right? Reminds me of Sam Cooke's song, things are going to change, oh or yeah. a change is going to come. Change is going to come. Change is going to come. Okay, and then the third challenge to be grasped is that those of us who wish now to adopt a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle have solid biblical support. And we will not say, as vegans, we will not say, it has never been justifiable to kill animals. Rather, we say, it is not now necessary to kill for food as it was once thought necessary. The biblical case for vegetarianism does not rest on the view that killing may never be allowable in the eyes of God, rather on the view that killing is always a grave matter. When we have to kill to live, we may do so. But when we do not, we should live otherwise. It is vital to appreciate the force of this argument. That is a great mm. a great point. God is basically saying, if you must kill in order to live, then go ahead. But if it's not necessary, find another way. Right. And I think that's true even... Between humans, right? Right. Like the idea of killing for self-defense, although it's a grave matter and it grieves the heart of God. Right. It's allowable. Right. But killing for any other reason is not allowable.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And it's funny, too, because, right, you know, you you have debates with non-vegans and they ask, you know, you get into these silly debates about if you're in a survival situation... What would you do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Would you eat animals? Well, I would, I would try to avoid it at all possible, right?
1: Right. And the question back to them was, what would you do if you walked into a fully stocked grocery store and could live and thrive and be healthy without eating animals? Right. What would you do in that situation? Because right, that's, exactly. that's the actual situation we all encounter. Right. The, the, the chances we're ever going to be on a deserted island is pretty slim. I like this paragraph. Those individuals who opt for vegetarianism can do so in the knowledge that they are living closer to the biblical ideal for peaceableness than their carnivorous contemporaries. (laughs) reminds me of a Gary Yurovsky quote. Mm -hmm. I think somebody said to him, like, oh, you vegans, you think you're so morally superior to everyone. He's like, we are. (laughs) Just like... People who don't commit murder are morally superior to people who do commit murder. We are. (laughs) So Lindsay's saying uh, we we can have the knowledge that we are living closer to the biblical ideal than our carnivorous contemporaries. This point should not be minimized. In many ways, it is difficult to know how we can live more peaceably in a world striven by violence and greed and consumerism. Individuals often feel powerless in the face of great social forces beyond even democratic control. To opt for a vegetarian lifestyle is to take one practical step towards living in peace with the rest of creation. One step towards reducing the rate of institutionalized killing in the world today. One less chicken eaten is one less chicken killed. I love this point because there's so much unbounded evil going on around us on this planet yeah. that we have so little control or influence over. Right. We hear about it. It breaks our hearts. <clears throat> we want to do something. We want things to change, but we have such little power, such little control over these evils. Here is something I can do, you can do. Right. To stop supporting violence, to stop supporting suffering yeah. of our fellow creatures. So it's very empowering. It is. Nevertheless, says Lindsay, we do well to appreciate the biblical perspective that we do not live in an ideal world. The truth is that even if we adopt a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle, we are still not free of killing either directly or indirectly. Even if we only eat beans and nuts and lentils, we have to reckon with the fact that competing animals are killed because of the crops we want to eat. Even if we decide not to wear dead animal skins, we have to face the fact that alternative substances have frequently been tested for their toxicity on laboratory animals. Even if we only eat soya beans, We do well to remember that these have been forced fed to animals in painful experiments. As I have written elsewhere, there is no pure land. If we embark on vegetarianism, as I think we should, we must do so on the understanding that for all its compelling logic, it is only one very small step toward the vision of a peaceful world.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's one of the quotes where. I just wonder if things have changed, if gotten a little better since he wrote this. How so? Well, I just wonder if there's less. In terms of animal testing, I guess this is the biggest one. I understand that we are pushing wildlife out of their domain so that we can make more land for grazing. Well, but
1: that's a good point because the argument is if you want to kill less wildlife, eat plants because... If we stop feeding so many crops to animals, we could have far less crop land. Right. We can reduce how much land we're using to grow crops if we're not feeding it to the billions of farmed animals first.
0: Right. So, yeah, I mean, this book was published in 1994. And so that was like 30 years ago, coming up on 30 years. So I just wonder if things have gotten better in 30 years yeah. I'm not disagreeing right. with the main thrust of his argument. Totally. I just wonder in that in this last thing you read, he kind of makes the statement that it's still better than anything else going vegan, but it's still not awesome.
1: Right.
0: So anyway, not not a big deal.
1: Lindsay now takes us to look at the life of Jesus once again. I think he's touched on this at least once or twice in other previous chapters, the idea being that, okay, well, it doesn't seem clear that Jesus lived a vegan life as he walked on this planet, right? Mm. And so what do we do with that? And Lindsay, I think, makes a very consistent argument with what he's already laid out. He says, sometimes it can be justifiable to kill fish for food in situations of necessity. Such a situation we may assume was present in first-century Palestine, where geographical factors alone seem to suggest a scarcity of protein. Such a view would, on the whole, be more consistent with the biblical perspective that we may kill, but only in circumstances of real need. Hence, we may have to face the possibility that Jesus did indeed participate in the killing of some life forms in order to live. Indeed, we may say that part of his being a human being at a particular stage and time in history necessitated that response in order to have lived at all. He goes on to say, killing, biblically, should be avoided at all costs. But there are times, for example, he says, when euthanasia may well be the most compassionate response to an individual being undergoing unrelievable suffering. So again, the gist of it is God, in God's goodness and mercy and loving kindness, sees our existence on this fallen planet and understands that at times in this fallen world, Killing is actually necessary for survival. But again, it should only be done when necessary. It should only be done with reverence. It's a solemn, grave Hmm. act. To kill without the strict conditions of necessity is to live a life with insufficient generosity. There is a powerful strand in his ethical teaching, speaking of Jesus, about the primacy of mercy to the weak, the powerless, and the oppressed. Without misappropriation, it is legitimate to ask, who is more deserving of this special compassion than the animals so commonly exploited in our world today? Moreover, it is often overlooked that in the canonical Gospels, Jesus is frequently presented as identifying himself with the world of animals. So we've talked about that as well. Right. So that feels, you know, I've, I've read different people responding to the idea like, well, Jesus wasn't a vegan. And I've read different responses. And this one feels the most consistent or resonant to me, that being a person living in first century Palestine, it may at times have been necessary for survival to eat fish. And again, there's no record of Jesus eating any other animals but there seems to be record of Jesus using fish. Right. Yeah. Jesus is shown to be in continuity with the Isaianic tradition in seeing the messianic age as bringing about a reconciliation between nature and humanity. If this is true, it may be that Mark is seeking to demonstrate how the gospel of Jesus has implications for the whole of the created world and harmony within the animal world in particular. Those who follow Jesus might argue that in seeking to realize what we can now be realized in our own time and space of the messianic age is to live now in conformity with the spirit of Jesus himself.
0: Well, yeah, Lindsay has this amazing quote in the book about Jesus and how he viewed animals or how he related to animals. And Mm -hmm. it's actually, I think, pretty compelling. It says, his birth, if tradition is to be believed, takes place in the home of sheep and oxen. His ministry begins, according to Mark, in the wilderness with the wild beasts. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem involves riding on a humble ass. According to Jesus, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which includes the rescuing of an animal fallen into a pit. Even the sparrows, literally sold for a few pennies in his day, are not forgotten before God. God's providence extends to the entire created order, And the glory of Solomon and all his works cannot be compared to the lilies of the field. God so cares for his creation that even foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Hmm. So it's pretty amazing. I mean, when you really start to put it in perspective, and, and really, it's God too, right? Right. How God sees his created order and how God takes care of his created order, even as we like to say on this podcast, the least of these.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Clearly Jesus had gentleness and mercy towards animals. You know, he wasn't out. I think as Lindsay said in the last chapter, right? Like if Jesus, if it was Jesus's will that so many of us Christians were brought up with our understanding of dominion, which is animals are here for us to do whatever we want to for entertainment and sport and eating and, If that was truly Jesus' will, he would have been doing those things to the nth degree. Right.
0: He'd be the greatest hunter.
1: Right. right? He'd be sacrificing animals all the time. He'd just use his powers. uh, Yeah. But instead we see Jesus being merciful and kind to animals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This chapter just reminds me, there's probably a lot of passages to unpack. You and I have talked about in future podcasts dealing with... These, some of these more difficult passages in the text, trying to answer them as best we can with a good vegan perspective and mm-hmm. just trying to understand what the text says, right? Not reading into it, but really trying to read out what, what, what was there. Kind of what I feel like Lindsay's done today, especially with the Noahic passage. When he puts it in context, it really makes sense. Right. It seems like it does justice to the text. It's good It's good biblical theology.
1: Yes. The word you use a lot is consistent, it feels more consistent to be merciful to all of creation rather than be merciful to some of creation, right. which is how we were raised. Right.
0: But. Yeah. So uh, next week um, we are going to finish with Andrew Lindsay, uh, chapter nine of his book. And I think after that, we're going to attempt to uh, start talking about atonement theory, but also really sacrifice animal sacrifice and try to deal with some of those difficult passages.
1: Of course, we're entering into the season of Lent. And That's right. so we can also focus in a little bit on, on Lent from a vegan perspective as well.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day.